0: Listen as I read first from Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, and it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And then one parallel verse in the New Testament, Paul writing to the Thessalonian church, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. We also thank God constantly for this, That when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it really is the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. May God bless this His Word and make it truly meaningful and clear to us this morning. In the act of receiving new members to this church, I've had a rich experience over the years of. Literally, being witness to hundreds of testimonies of how men and women embrace saving faith in Christ as Lord because we ask that of every new member that they briefly describe to a few of us elders how Christ found them and how they saw their need of him. Some of these life accounts are much more memorable than others. There are a lot of common patterns that are heard But it's always interested me how some that are the simplest in the telling are also very impressive. The experience of a man who is one of our ruling elders today gave testimony to us of how after high school, before college, he worked on merchant ships out of eastern seaports in the United States. And he was a young man uh, actually living in a freighter-type Ship environment as they'd go from one port to another, making not necessarily trans-world journeys, but up and down the, I guess the eastern seaboard and other places delivering cargoes. And on this ship this is a few decades ago there weren't a lot of amusements to things to do when you weren't actually on duty in some way. And so he found that for whatever reason, he had a Bible in his possession. And he began to read it, I guess more earnestly than he ever had before. Not that he'd never seen it before, but he began to read it closely. I'm not sure what books he began with, but he told how he got to the Gospels and really was drawn in as he saw the compelling picture of Jesus Christ. I believe the Gospel of John particularly gripped him and held him as he saw who Christ was purely from reading God's Word on his own with no guidance, no radio preacher, no pastor in a pulpit, no church surrounding him at all, just him and a Bible. And God gripped this man and led him into the kingdom of God with just a Bible. I suggested last time in these messages that we're looking at This is the fourth time now that we look at this topic of why trust the Bible. A few weeks ago, I said we have a crisis of biblical authority. It's been around for at least a century, even more in some places. People questioning what once was not questioned. Leaders in the church question, can the Bible be trusted? Is the Bible accurate? Is it reliable? Can we stand upon it? Can we draw conclusions from it And many will hedge their bets on the answer to that all over the place. I suggested that we need to know that the true God is a God who speaks. We saw that a couple weeks ago. The true God is one who speaks and communicates. False gods are made of wood. They're basically blockheads. They don't speak. They can't speak. They can't answer questions. They can't hear prayer. Then last time, I looked at the process. We said, well, how does God speak? How does he put his thoughts into human authors' minds? And we run into that term inspiration, which actually means the breathing out. It's mysterious, to be sure. It's not something that we can scientifically analyze, and yet God, allowing an author to remain who he was and and speak with his own words, nevertheless puts his thoughts into that life so that they become God's thoughts and God's word. Well, now we want to look today a little bit at the subject of evidences and and proof, if you will. How is it that the Bible exhibits itself and demands, actually, our confidence that we trust it? I read a sentence in a couple of books I was looking at about the word of God this past week, and one sentence grabbed me where the author said, God's Word never waits for us to give it permission to be God's Word. If indeed it is God's Word, then it is that, with or without us. We're the losers if we don't recognize God's Word to be what it is. It was C.S. Lewis who said, if you're charged with the task of defending an African lion... And you need to defend this African lion from some man who wants to attack it. That's not a hard task. Just open the cage and get out of the way. The lion will do the job. And that's the way it is with Scripture. We think we have to come and hit people over the head and show them very convincing things. Oh, let me prove to you that the Bible really is God's Word. Well, the Bible doesn't wait for us to give it permission To be God's Word. It is God's Word whether we say so or not. But today I want to look at some concrete evidences for the inherent effectiveness and work of the Bible as it comes at our minds. I was going to say attacks our mind, and I was debating that verb even as I was ready to say it, but I think I could say that as it attacks our mind, the good kind of attack, the attack to convince us of truth from God. And I give you two different texts to start out with here, and then with a principle established upon those texts, I have five applications to make for you today. First, then we looked at Isaiah 55, and my particular concern was verse 11, when the Lord speaks through the prophet, saying, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It won't return empty. It will accomplish what I purpose and succeed in the things for which I sent it. And then that word in First Thessalonians 2.13 about recognizing God's word instead of man's word and the fact that it, again, accomplishes the task of, of salvation in us. We're going to look at that a bit more in a minute. Marvelous effects accompany the word of God, self-authenticating effects. You know what that word means? In other words, it's not that I have to come to the Bible and bring a toolkit of, of things and build a display and say, here, let me build my display, and my display will, like, my, like a science fair project, will show you all the reasons why you should trust the Bible from outside arguments. No, all I have to do is open the Bible and say, look at the arguments displayed within the Bible itself. It speaks itself. It authenticates itself. And that's what I want to come to this morning. First, just summarizing this principle. We're using, I hope I'm not abusing my texts, but we're springboarding off of them to say the Word of God has unique power to accomplish whatever God intends it to do. That's what Isaiah was saying. I'm sending my Word out on a mission with a purpose, God said, and it always accomplishes that purpose. I have designed it to do this. It will not return void. It will accomplish what I give it to do because it has the very power of my Spirit in it and upon it. You see, Isaiah 55.10, the previous verse there, compared that, a simple comparison, to rain and snow coming down from heaven and not returning you know, it doesn't stop three inches from the ground and then get evaporated back up into the cloud. It comes down, it soaks the earth, and it causes seed to grow and fruit to be born and that wonderful sweet corn to ripen on the, or grow on the stalk. It does things. It grows things. And certainly we know we, what a half-day's rain would do right now to my brown, crispy lawn. It's not in such good shape. I don't know about yours. It doesn't get a lot of shade, so it gets very brown. I'd love to see a half day of rain have green back again. But then I have to mow it, of course. But it Seems like a frustrating cycle. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says, Paul praises these believers and says, and notice he was talking about his own preaching and that of Barnabas and the others. Preaching of the apostles as what it really is, the Word of God. Not just the Word of man, the Word of God. Here's an apostle saying, what I have said to you is sent from God. The exact equivalent to what Isaiah was saying, speaking for the Lord, the word of the Lord. Paul was already conscious that God was speaking in this unique way and apparently understood that this was the truth of the Lord, active, working. I've given you this illustration before, so I'm sorry if it's it's in my collection of overused illustrations, and sometimes people remind me, oh, you use that illustration too often. Well, you can tell me that this morning, but I like this illustration. The translator of the New Testament, J.B. Phillips, was doing his paraphrase of the New Testament, which is a wonderful paraphrase. That means it's not as literal as other Bible translations, but it's colorful, it's useful. And Phillips, when he did this in the 1950s, a careful British scholar Said, I felt when I was working with the Greek of the of the New Testament to try to state it colorfully and, and in a way that would capture people's imagination. He said, I felt like I was an electrician rewiring a house with the power turned on all the time. That's what he sensed about the Word of God. This is powerful stuff. It's alive. These aren't dead words of ancient documents. I could bring in another text that I did not read, maybe as another parallel, and that would be Hebrews 4.12, familiar verse that many of you will recognize, that tells us the Word of God is living and active, and it's sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Word of God is like a sharp scalpel in the hands of a highly skilled surgeon. You know, what is it that surgeons get paid thousands of dollars to do? Uh, the brain surgeon, if I've got a tumor in my head and it needs to be removed, boy, you know, the doctor's going to say, Rogers, you need the operation to get the tumor out. I'm not going to say, what's the cheapest rate I can get it? You know, do they do this at Walmart or Walgreens or someplace? I'm just going to say, Doc, let's do it. I probably won't even know what it costs till after the fact because I want the man who knows where to cut to the micromillimeter and not to let that scalpel move to the right or the left or do anything unnecessary. That's what the Word of God is said to do. It's like the scalpel in the hands of a skilled surgeon probing the human soul, dissecting malignant sin cancers in our lives and our hearts. You know, you could, you could say, well, Maybe a bargain basement surgeon can do it, and maybe i 'll step in and say, "Hey, okay, uh, that operation 's going to cost you thirty thousand i 'll do it for ten i 've got a Swiss army knife, you know I, You would be wise to go for the thirty man, not the ten. The Word of God comes with skill and dynamism and, and bestowal of life it 's full of self fulfilling energy to actually accomplish." purposes of the living God in us. And that's why I can say to you then that as we stand back and look at the Bible as a whole, we see this lively body of truth. And upon this truth of God as a whole, we find self-authenticating evidences that our Bible is just that kind of truth from God himself. So the rest of the time here, I have five concise Things, and there could be more, but I'll restrict it to five examples of fingerprints of God that can be found on his word that evidence to us that scripture is powerful, effective communication from God himself. If you've been through our new members class, short advertisement starts next Sunday. If you've been through that class here at Westminster, you've heard these things because we talk about the Bible and its authority in that class. But a review will not hurt you any, for having heard this before. Number one, a fingerprint of God on the Bible is this, that there are many authors, in fact, most of the authors of the Bible, somewhere deliberately claim that their writing originates from God. At least they claim it, okay? You say, well, that doesn't prove it. Hold on just a minute. They claim it. And in fact, Jesus would be a leading candidate here who purposely and repeatedly said as he was speaking, I speak everything my Father gives me to speak. You look in the Gospel of John, he's constantly saying things like that. I say to you only what has been given to me from my Father. The words I speak are my Father's words, and so on. Jesus claims that many, many times. Other biblical authors, someone has counted that in the Old Testament alone, the phrase Thus says the Lord is there more than 2,000 times. Now, that's a lot of claims where people who are saying, I'm speaking what God speaks. Or Moses, for example, being said, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Someone has calculated the book of Malachi, the last book, relatively, you know, it's not one of the major books. It's a rather minor book, important in its own way. But Malachi is only four short chapters. Somebody says in it 20 times in four short chapters. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts. The point is, you've got biblical authors, left, right, and center, claiming to speak the Word of God. Now, you might right away say, if you're smart, you'd say, well, that doesn't prove anything. A person can claim anything they want. I could claim to you, I am the forgotten Uh, chief prince of the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. I'm actually an Arab and I'm sailing for Saudi Arabia so they would invest me in my office and give me the mansion that I need and the the bank account that has ten billion dollars in it. Because it's mine by right. I'm the prince of Saudi Arabia. And you'd say uh huh well I'm not the prince of Saudi Arabia and if I make that claim it's ridiculous. So Why do I make it a point and say that it's important that the biblical authors claim to speak from God? Well, think again if you're smart. It's important because either these people are telling the truth or they're fools and deceivers and charlatans making utterly false and even ridiculous claims and in the lead of the pack is Jesus. Who says, I only speak what my Father in heaven speaks. So the point is that this fingerprint of God that they say their writing originates from God is important because we have to make a decision. Either we're dealing with fools, either we're dealing with deceivers who are maybe self-deceived, maybe they're deluded themselves and they belong in a mental institution, although we don't have those anymore, or they're telling the truth. God's fingerprint number two in the Bible. Scripture displays an astonishing unity of its theme and subject and conclusions across the period of 15 centuries with 40 authors contributing from different cultures and positions in life. The authors of the Bible were farmers, shepherds, kings, priests, tax collectors, a physician, a fisherman, and on and on. They were not unified in their cultural origin, in the language they spoke. they were as different as could possibly be. It would be like you know let's let's go back forty centuries and, and go to to uh, well, we haven't had Christianity for forty centuries, so let's say twenty centuries and we'll pluck two people out of each of the twenty centuries and then put them together and they're the authors of the Bible, no matter what country they come from, America, England, France, South Africa. Wherever. Completely different backgrounds, different people, and they're going to compose a book that is going to be unified in the theme and the conclusions that it draws in a wonderful way. How is that possible? One commentator said, I quote, Biblical unity is not superficial, it is profound. The deep underlying unity across the span of the Bible, he said, is an organic thing like the internal structure of a living tree or a great plant with roots, trunk, branches, and leaves all interrelated and intercommuning one with the other. In Revelation, we have the ripened fruit that began in the seed of Genesis. That's the unity of the Bible. Anyone who studies it honestly will testify. And the more you study it, the more that becomes apparent. The Westminster Larger Catechism, we quoted in our service earlier from the Shorter Catechism. There's also a larger catechism, just a bit longer in a lot of its entries. It was written in 1647, a long time ago. Question four of the Larger Catechism asks, how does it appear that the Scriptures are the Word of God? The answer, in part, says the Scriptures manifest themselves to be the Word of God by the consent of all the parts and the scope of the whole. That's a scholar's way of saying by its unity. The parts and the whole are in perfect agreement, and man alone could not concoct such a unity. Thirdly, God's fingerprint is on the Bible with this evidence, self-sustaining evidence. The Bible displays uncanny accuracy in terms of facts and history and archaeology. now I'm going to deal, hopefully, in a future week, I have a planned that I would spend a week on the alleged contradictions. And notice what I said, alleged contradictions of the Bible. And we'll talk about that. But the fact is that over the centuries, the Bible's accuracy as to facts has proved to be simply uncanny. Let me just put before you a tiny example of something very detailed, and when I start to unfold this, you're going to say, that doesn't even sound important, but let me tell you why it is important. The book of Acts written by Dr. Luke in Acts 13, 7 has Paul and Barnabas coming to the island of Cyprus on their ministry travels. And as they come there, Luke, who's accompanying and knows the the circumstances, writes and says, they greeted the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. Sergius Paulus was, had the, an office, he was called a proconsul appointed by Rome to govern this territory. Now, for a long time, people criticized that verse. Classical scholars criticized it because they said, well, Luke is obviously ignorant. Because Cyprus, they said, was not governed by a proconsul. It was governed by an imperial legate. And I'm not going to go into the difference in those, but they're different appointments within the government of Rome. So, Luke's wrong. He called him a proconsul when he was an imperial legate. Well, guess what? And this happens time after time. Further research of classical studies emerged of the appointments made by Rome and who was governing Cyprus. Guess what? AD 47. About a year before Paul visited Cyprus, the governor of Cyprus, the ruler appointed by Rome, was named proconsul. And nobody knew that before. Well, wait a minute. Luke knew it. And Luke got it right. A little tiny, almost meaningless detail. But if, here's the point if the little tiny, almost meaningless details are right, don't you think the man writing probably got the big details? The big facts, right, as well? Scripture shows this time after time. Sometimes there are what look like apparent discrepancies or apparent difficulties. You study it further. You learn more about it. You dig around in the cultural background and so on, and you find the, the trouble melting away. I'm going to embarrass somebody for a moment. Many of you don't know that we have an archaeologist in our congregation. In fact, he's in the room right now. I'm not looking at him but uh, many of you know him, many do not. A biblical archaeologist who functions out there in the world of digging around in the rocks and the pottery shards and the scraps of papyrus and things that help us understand the past. A, a few days ago, I was uh, on a day, my day off, I guess it was, and I flipped the TV on and I, I just looked through and I stopped at a cable channel one of these channels that has programs about the Bible, which are usually tearing the Bible apart. But I was not only surprised, but absolutely delighted that on this program was our Westminster member, Dr. Bryant Wood, presenting evidence about the walls of Jericho and what happened in the conquest of Jericho, which is questioned and challenged all over the place by Israeli secular archaeologists. Bryant tells me that that they're some of the most difficult people because they just basically start out rejecting whatever the Bible says. They say, well, the Bible's not right, so we can't go by that. And they question whether the walls came tumbling down and so on as we see in the biblical record. And Bryant was basically showing, as I understood his argument, how the biblical account of what happened makes the most sense in coherence with the rocks and everything else that can be observed by an archaeologist. By detailed work, our archaeologists, time and time again. If you will come with an unbiased mind, you will find the Bible with its facts supported by archaeology and by history and by ancient records. These things stand, folks. The Bible is not torn apart or afraid of the judgment of history. Fourth fingerprint of God's self authenticating. Power seen in the Bible, and this, is a, this one is probably easy for you to grasp, although it's a huge area, and that is the wonder of fulfilled prophecy. Now, this fills books and whole volumes, and I could spend hours. I won't, I promise. It's Labor Day weekend. All right. But uh, huge subject, fulfilled prophecy, the fact that dozens and scores of things are predicted in the Old Testament, this will happen to Edom. This will happen to the Moabites. Israel will experience this. And then some way further along, we see those things happen. It was never pointed out to me when I was a young person. I don't. I was along in years, I guess, at least in seminary, when somebody pointed out how early in the Bible there's a prediction that is so wonderfully fulfilled. Genesis 3.15. The most potent prediction Prophecy in all of the Bible is also the first prophecy in all the Bible, and that is when God was uttering the curse on the serpent for having tempted Eve and so on, and it was, it was said what was going to happen to him, the word of the Lord was, the seed of the woman, curious expression, the seed of the woman will crush your head while you will strike his heel. I never saw that when I was a youngster, never understood that what an important prophecy of Jesus Christ is in the third chapter of Genesis, perfectly fulfilled as God crushed the serpent and the serpent struck the heel of God's Son, Christ. It unrolls from there. You could take probably the most prominent chapter, Isaiah 53, I do not understand how someone can read Isaiah 53. Read it thoroughly. Remind yourself there, there isn't a question by any scholar, liberal or conservative, that says Isaiah 53 was written within you know, just a short time of the ministry of Christ. It wasn't. 700 years before. Read it over. And what you're reading is a portrait in the mirror of Jesus, the suffering servant. In stunning detail, 700 years before. Read Psalm 22. Items fulfilled, gambling for Jesus' clothes, his hands and his feet being pierced, thieves killed on either side of him. Things fulfilled in one day, on the day of Calvary when our Savior died. What can account for this? Except the mind of God, the all-seeing mind of God, knowing the future and the past as if it was one continuous stream. Jesus being buried in a rich man's tomb, it's in there. Jesus being born in Bethlehem, it's in there. Fulfilled prophecy alone has the fingerprints of God on the self-authenticity of the Bible. A fifth one, finally, today, is the amazing power of the Bible to change people. Now I'm right back where I started. Where did I begin? With the gentleman from our church Who had a Bible in his hand, no preacher available, no church available, no group Bible study, no Christian publication or explanation of theology, a Bible. And this young man read it, and God took possession of his soul. History is replete with people to whom this has happened drunkards who came to lifetime sobriety. People would say, You don't just turn around and stop drinking. You don't do that. It's hard. It's a a chemical dependency. Well, people will say, the Bible did it in my life. Arrogant rulers, dictators who were humbled into the dust and became humble before God, people diswrought by grief or tragedy, being comforted and empowered to live. They would say, the Bible did it. The Holy Spirit through the Bible did it. I'm sure some of you watch a program that I know is on TV a lot. I have never, never really watched it. I just see the ads all the time, but it's just not something that it draws my interest. But the CSI programs, Crime Scene Investigators, if I understand correctly, that's what that's about, that a crime is committed, and in come the scientists, the forensic scientists, and, you know, they're looking for how do we reconstruct? Who did this? How can we know? Well, certainly one of the greatest ways they're going to know is if there are identifiable fingerprints. And the smart crook wears gloves. I don't know why people can't get smart enough and put on gloves. You'd get away with a lot more. But the CSI people come in, and if they find the fingerprints, they say, ah, we've got him now. We'll just track him down in the national computer. Well, I'm not suggesting that the Bible is a crime scene. It isn't but I'm suggesting to you that the abundant fingerprints of God as author are all over his word in a self-authenticating way. Jonathan Edwards wrote about it. Here's what he said. The gospel of the blessed God does not go abroad begging society for evidence to back it up as some think it must. Instead, Edwards says, the Bible has within itself the highest and most proper evidences of all. The very words of Scripture have this self-authenticating living power of truth that grabs people and holds them and changes them. I read uh, years ago, I believe this true incident happened in China in in the time when China was in greater darkness and of the West not really knowing what was going on there for Christianity in the 50s. And yet, Despite great repression under the, the rulership of Mao Zedong and his people, millions being killed and everything else, Christianity openly opposed. Christianity was booming. But there was a woman who wrote her testimony account about the fact that she had become a Christian, and she said, but before I became a Christian, I never saw a Bible. In fact, I didn't see a Bible for quite a while after I was a Christian. But what she had was a pamphlet put out by the communist government of China attacking Christianity, bitterly, strongly attacking. And what this pamphlet of half a dozen pages or so did was put verses of the Bible in the pamphlet and then attack them. Oh, how ridiculous. How could this be true? You know, And so that there ended up a dozen or more, 15 verses of Scripture being attacked. Well, she said, I read the pamphlet and I was struck by it and I reread it and I reread it and pretty soon I realized that the attacks of the government meant nothing. They were worthless. They were meaningless. But the words of God quoted by the communist government in their pamphlet shone for me upon the page like light from heaven. Thank you, communist China. You helped win a convert to Jesus Christ. By the only scripture she knew being in a government attack tirade. That's the power of the word of God. First Thessalonians two thirteen pronounced a conclusion on that. Again, as Paul said, you receive the truth of Scripture, not as the mere word of men, but for what it really is, the Word of God doing its transforming work in you. First Peter one twenty three said in a similar way, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the living and abiding Word of God. People, my goal this morning is simply that you would value and honor this living book. There are a lot of wonderful dead books that have wonderful things in them, facts and and literature and poetry and great things for you to learn. Put them on the shelf and put this one in the middle. And it's not just the difference that this one might be the only one with a leather cover and markers sticking out of it and gold edging on the pages. It's that this one is alive and they're all dead. Don't miss God's living communication in his powerful word. Father, thank you once more for the powerful gift of your word. We confess taking it for granted. We confess the many shelves somewhere, perhaps in homes represented here where there's a Bible with a lot of dust on it. How ridiculous that your living truth would gather dust. Father, let that truth break forth in our midst like a lion, not to destroy us, but to change us, that we might meet your spirit and your goals for us and our salvation and our discipleship in this world would be accomplished through this book. Thank you for the wonderful gift of your word. Amen.